I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning, Genesis chapter 22, look at verse, we'll start with verse 20, but before we get there, we, we need to pray, but Genesis chapter 22, we'll start there, our text this morning is, pr- is primarily Genesis 24, but 22 gives us the the strip of land from which Genesis 24 is going to take off, all right? So if Genesis 24 is an airplane, 22, the last few verses of 22 give us that, not a landing strip, but the, the, that takeoff strip. So but before we go and dive into the word, word of God, let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, this is your word. We pray that you would guide us in it, help us this morning. That we may see that your word is a lamp to our feet. That it is sweeter than honeycomb. That we may rejoice in it. That we may anchor our lives in it. And be nourished by it, O God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22. Before we get there, we are... Thinking of 24, and 24 is what I have titled this sermon. It is a, a little bit of an Old Testament romance. What my couple of my boys have come to call uh, love and junk. Uh, anytime we are watching something together as a family, or if a story is being read, and two of the characters begin to express feelings for each other and gaze longingly in one another's eyes, they like moan and put their faces in the pillows. Ah, love and junk. Well, this is the love and junk of the Old Testament. And, um, you know, our store, our world loves romance stories. It loves romance. It loves love. Pride and Prejudice. Jane Eyre, which is a whole different genre of a love story. If liking a man who has his wife caged up in a tower who burns everything down is your jam, that's a great love story. You've got uh, movies like Casablanca, and maybe the greatest love story of all, um, I think of The Princess Bride, right? That's a great one. But one of my favorites is an old story written in 1897. It is Cyrano de Bergerac. It is a, a, a play. It is a play. It is a great play. It is about a man who... It, it has comedy, it has uh, action, it's got a little bit of... It's got everything you would want. It, it centers on this man named Cyrano, who is a brilliant poet. He is witty, he is smart, so that anybody who tries to make fun of him, he is able to quickly turn it around and you know, put them on their heads verbally, so to speak. He's brilliant, he, and he's a brilliant poet. He, he can make fun of you while writing poetry at the same time, and generally he will make fun of you through poetry. He's a brilliant kind of guy. More than that, he is a great swordsman. 1897, it's describing a time in, in France where swords were predominantly used, and he is a great swordsman. And so no one wants to spar with him. No one wants to, 
too deeply make fun of him because it may mean the end of their lives. He's a pretty dangerous guy. Several times in the story of Cyrano, he is facing multitudes of enemies and he puts them all to flight because he is a a terrifying, brutal swordsman. But he's more than that. He is also a little bit of a romantic. He's got a, a little bit of a crush on a girl named Roxanne. But there's a problem. Cyrano is, I mean, Cyrano's ugly. He has, in the story, he's got a long, very long nose. And so he is, though he is in in every other way, he is the man's man. He's independent. And at a time when everyone else sells their services to whoever will pay the most, he will sell himself to no one. He is free. He's independent. He is witty. He's intellectual. He is a great swordsman. He's everything. But because of his nose, he's a bit insecure. But he has this crush, a serious crush, on Roxanne, who he grew up with. He, he was friends with when they were really young. And one time she, she calls him. She, she wants him to come visit and to talk with him. And so he is so excited to hear. And he goes and she tells him that there is another guy that she's attracted to. A guy named Christian, and he's really, really handsome. And Cyrano's heart just breaks. But Cyrano is the leader of a a, a terrifying, a brilliant, a, a swords, a, a, a regiment of soldiers fighting in battle, and his regiment is about to be called up. And apparently, Christian is a going. He he is about to be uh, sent to join Cyrano's regiment, and so she asks. Cyrano to protect Christian from harm while they're in battle. And she wants him to find out if maybe Christian feels about her the way she does him. You can imagine how Cyrano felt about all this. But Cyrano, because he loves Roxanne, he does it. And he goes to the, he goes to the battle, he goes to the war, and with, with Christian, he protects him, always at the forefront. He is leading the way and making sure Christian is protected from harm. And during that time, he finds out that Christian does indeed really love Roxanne, but Christian, though he is apparently a, a really good-looking guy, there's, there's a lot on the outside, not a lot going on up top kind of fella. And uh, he's afraid to talk to Roxanne because he knows Roxanne is a smart girl. And if he talks with her, she's going to realize he's not. So he concocts a plan with Cyrano that Cyrano will write love letters to Roxanne for him. And Cyrano begins to do it. And he pours out his own love and affection for Roxanne. And every night he has to cross through, cross, uh, go across the lines of battle to get these letters to Roxanne and deliver them and then return, braving all sorts of trials. By the end of the story, well, Christian dies. And his letters have so touched Roxanne that she goes into lifelong mourning. She will no longer marry anyone because her one true love has passed away. Cyrano, by this point, has become good friends with her. And though she is in mourning, though she is alone, he comes and he visits her regularly. And in one of her visits, he's wounded, but he, he hides those wounds. He's been in a battle. 
hides his wounds, but he comes and he visits and he asks, you've told me many times that I will be able to get to read one of those letters, that, that one letter that you prize so very much that he sent to you. Would you let me read it? And so she gives it to him to read. And as he reads it, night begins to fall until Roxanne realizes that it's too dark for Cyrano to be able to, to be reading it. He's not reading this letter. He is quoting the letter. And at that moment, it dawns on her that it was not Christian who wrote these letters of his love. It was Cyrano who loved her so much. And then Cyrano falls down and dies. It's a great story. It's a great story. That is some great love and junk. And we have a little bit of love and junk in our story today. It starts back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 20. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, this is after Abraham and Isaac have gone to Mount Moriah and offered up the lamb there to sacrifice in place of Isaac. And they bring this, and we're given this news. Abraham is hearing some news from his family 400 miles away. And we're told, indeed, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Milcah being uh, Nahor's wife. Huz is his firstborn. Buzz is his brother. And I can imagine Huz and Buzz, that, that's, that's, a, that's a, a difficult thing to keep in straight. Huz, get down here. Buzz, uh, no, not you, your brother. Uh, Kemuel, the father of Aram. Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel, this is the, the daughter, Bethuel begot Rebekah, and these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gehem, Thahash, and Makkah. What we have here is this news that has reached Abraham, and this news is important because up till now, uh, the lines between communication are slim. You can imagine there is no reliable mail system. It's before Instagram and Facebook and phone calls and, and uh, text messaging. They, they don't get news from one another. They are 400 miles away. And he finds out that God is blessing his family back home. And that comes to play when we begin to look at what is happening in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 23, Sarah passes away. And in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham begins looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac by this point is 40 years old. Perhaps now... Because Sarah has died, the, the urgency of the situation is being felt a lot more keenly. It's not just that Abraham is tired of his 40-year-old son living in, his, in the basement of his tent. That's not what's going on. What we have is Abraham's keen awareness that if Isaac doesn't have get a wife, then they can't be a son. And if they don't have a son and they, they don't have family, then the promises of God to them that he will have many descendants will not be fulfilled. More than that, if we do not have Isaac, we do not have Jacob. If we do not have Jacob, we do not end up having Israel. If we do not have Israel, we do not have Moses. We do not have the prophets. We do not have King David. We do not have 
Joseph or Mary or Christ. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the fate of the world, the promises of God to us, rest on Isaac getting married. Now, I don't know that he was fully aware of all those implications, but they were keenly aware that the promises of God rested on the line continuing. Here's his 40-year-old son without a wife. It is deeply concerned. And so Abraham and... 24 verses 1 to 9, we see the situation unfold. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, which is an unusual way to make a, a vow. Nowadays, we would pinky swear, or um, you know, we have lawyers to deal with all that. Or you know, a former time, you may have you know, spit on your hand and shook on it, guys. Um, but here, there are several things involved, but it is a way that they showed and, and committed themselves to something. So put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. That Lord, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of, his mas- of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now Abraham commissions his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And he makes him swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. That's massively significant. He's, he's even at this moment wanting his servant and he wants us, Moses wants us and he, as he is writing to the people of Israel as they are preparing to enter into the promised land, he wants them to be fully aware that the Lord, the God whom we serve is not a provincial God. He is not contained by boundaries or the walls of a church building or property. This God is the God of heaven and earth. There is no place where he does not rule and reign. It makes him swear to find a wife for Isaac. There are two things that are unusual here. That instance of swearing by putting your hand under your thigh is one. But the second is that he wants him to go back to his family and get a wife from his extended family, which for us is a bit odd. And I know we've dealt with this from the past, but for us, every time we read this, this still raises red flags because most of us, I hope all of us, don't or didn't go back to family reunions looking for a wife or a husband. And yet that's exactly what he's doing. He's sending Isaac, sending the servant back to where his extended family is so that he can find a wife. And there are two things that are different. First, fundamentally, we have to understand that part of the reason intermarrying within our own family is illegal and not just illegal but unwise is because of genetics. But at that time, 
the, the genetic pool had not become so shallow that it was so worrisome. More than that, God himself, who is, that go- who is later on going to denounce and say you can no longer marry within the same family, at, that time, at this time, it has not yet come. And this is still common practice. But there is something else that is concerning to, to Abraham. I mean, why send a servant 400 miles away, a, a long and treacherous journey, when there are plenty of young, eligible women around him? The concern of Abraham is that the people of the Canaanites in whose land he dwells, they are not followers of God. In fact, they, they worship other gods. And his concern is that Isaac, and not only Isaac, but then Isaac's family and all of his descendants would then no longer worship and follow the one true God, but that they might find their hearts led away. What, what Abraham is worried about is the same thing that we see later on in Scripture commanded for Christians not to marry non-Christians. Why? Because there is a conflict of interest. Now it may be that we come and we become a believer in Christ while we are married, and that is entirely different. But we are not to, as Christians, try to find another, not, uh, another spouse for us outside of the household of faith. We will find much pain and hardship there. We are not to flirt to convert, is what he's arguing for. We are simply to look among those people of the Lord. And the, and the servant agrees to this, taking the oath to it. And we see in the next 58 verses how this plan unfolds. And I will just tell you now, I, I am not going to read all 58 verses. Uh, I, I like to read. I know some of you think, man, he reads these chapters, even though they're long. And I, and I like to do that because we firmly believe that God's word gives life and that every word is given to us by God. But there are significant portions of this chapter where Phrases and not just phrases, but entire sections are repeated. And so we're going to try to move things along for the sake of time to give, help us get the big picture. But what we see is this journey in verse 10. And, and, and really, it's fascinating. In one verse, there is an allusion to this 400-mile-long journey that the servant would have taken. But that's all that's given to it. The rest of it is given to interacting what, or to what happens once the servant gets to where he's going. So we see in verse 12, then he said, O Lord, once he has arrived at the place where he's going, he finds himself at the right location, where he thinks is the right location. Verse 12 to 28, then he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink and I will give your camels a drink. This, and by the way, for a woman to not only offer to give him drink, uh, but to offer to give all of his camels to feed his entire party. Because you've got to remember, this man is not traveling alone. There is a party with him that he's traveling with. And she is going to, she is going to uh, give enough water for his entire, uh, for the, all the camels that are with him and his party. 
And so he says, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have chosen, that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down, down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And that, that gives us a picture of the wells in those days. The wells were not simply like we might think of lowering the bucket down and bringing it back up. They, it was um, a, a large pit in which you had to descend by a series of steps. And then with whatever... Uh, instrument you were using container to bring water up you would then carry that full of water up this is no small task so she descends and she brings it up she filled her pitcher and came up verse 17 and the servant ran to meet her and said please let me drink a little water from your pitcher so she said drink my lord then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink and when she had finished giving him a drink she said I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or successful or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us? to lodge and the us there he's not talking about her and him he's talking about him and all of the people with him for us to lodge so she said to him I am the daughter of Bethuel Milcah's son whom she bore to Nahor moreover she said to him we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being, in some translations will say, being in the way. And it may sound as if it's saying like he was in the way of the Lord and the God still worked around him. But they, it's really being on the way or following after the Lord. Uh, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. And the servant comes and he prays for something incredibly unlikely. And he prays very detailed. Let the first woman I come, let the first woman I, I see and that I approach and I go to her and I ask her to fill up the, uh, to, to, to give me some drink. And then she's going to offer to do to, to, to feed, not to feed, but to, to give the fill of water to all of our camels. Let that be the woman that you have chosen for my servant, or for my servant's master, for my master's son, Isaac. And we are shocked to find that exactly as he prays, immediately we are told that the Lord leads Rebecca out and she does exactly what he prays would happen. And we see in verses 29 to 53 that the family has this grand reception for them. Laban, she, she, Rebecca runs back home. You know, he's, he's given her some expensive jewelry. She runs back home and we get a little hint at Laban's character. His first 
responds is once he sees the jewelry that she's got on her wrists and all the gold, he's like, hmm, this sounds interesting. And he races back to uh, the servant and he invites him to come home with them. And and there the servant begins to uh, explain all that has happened. And he begins to unpack what God has done and how God answered his prayer. And after he has finished giving the story and relaying how the Lord has given him success, he says this in verse 49. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. You know, when confronted this directly, they respond this way in verses 50 to 51. The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either good or bad. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son, your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And then again, he gives rich gifts. He responds with worship. But then we see something critical. After this, they they feast through the night. And then the next morning, that servant is ready to go. He's like, look, mission accomplished. I found the woman. Now it's about getting her back, getting her married to my master's son. Everything's going to be great. But as they're about to leave, Laban and Rebecca's mom are, are, are concerned. Let's just wait for a little bit. And I think most of us can understand If your family members showed up, if you have daughters, showed up and said, hey, we would love them, family members. But a man was like, hey, I'm here for your daughter. You're not going to simply say the next day, take her. There is concern here. And so they they say, "Let's, let's wait, let's give it some time. And the master servant, he, he, he notices the hesitancy. And he's afraid that if he, if he waits, if he, if he gives in to the hesitancy here, he'll never leave with her. She'll never want to leave. And so he insists, no, I'm going to leave today. And they say, no, give us 10 days. He says, no, today. And they say, well, let's settle this. Rebecca, why don't you come in and you tell us what you think Will you go with this man or not? And this is important because this is the first time that Rebecca is asked what she thinks about this matter. And she responds in verse 58 with these powerful words. I will go. You know, that's the same resolve of faith that we saw from Abraham back in chapter 12. God calls him to leave his home, his family, his land, his security, and go to a place where he does not know. And that is the faith that Rebecca is showing here. She is, it is almost as if she is now a a female version of Abraham. She is being called, and she decides to go to trust and follow the Lord's call on her life. More than this, we see this this same this same mindset, this same these same words. In another young woman who is widowed many, many years later, who follows her mother-in-law and Ruth, when she is encouraged to not go, she responds that she will go, I will go. It is the same attitude that we see in both Samuel and in the prophet Isaiah who respond, here I am, Lord, send me. 
And it is the same mindset that we see of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours. This is a remarkable faith from a remarkable woman. And as she leaves, her family gives her this blessing in verse 60. Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands and ten thousands. Here, the same blessing that, was, that God has promised on Abraham, he now, through the lips of her family, is promising her. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate him. That is, this, this is the same promise that God gave to Abraham back in chapter 22 in verses 17 forward. This is the promise of victory. And then we see in the last seven verses, 61 to 67, the, the, the return and marriage of Rebekah to Isaac. Follow along in verse 61. Then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening and he lifted his eyes and looked and there the camels were coming. And you can imagine Isaac. He knows what this servant has been about to do. He has been watching. He is, who is going to show up? What is this woman going to be like? Verse 64. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she said, for she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay, so it's not the typical Hollywood romance. But I want you to notice one thing. There is that line in verse 67 where we're told after she becomes his wife, we're told, and he loved her. That is an unusual statement. We don't find that too often. And that would not have been expected in, in arranged marriages like this. Not, not immediately. But here what we're told is that there was not just this was not just a, a, a duty marriage. This what marriage was a delight to them both. There was some heat in this marriage. There was love here. But we read through Genesis chapter 24 and we ask, what is the purpose of this? And we have to know this was and is a significant chapter. This is... The longest chapter in Genesis. Moses devotes more words to this event than he does to any other event. And it seems odd. And it's not because Moses is secretly a hopeless romantic. Something else has got to be going on. Why is this chapter so critical? Why does he spend so much time on it? Now, there are many, when we, when we come to this chapter, oftentimes we will walk away with 
some simple, helpful lessons about how we ought to live. Some, some good character sketches. And there are some good character things and, and things that we can learn. We see the faithfulness of this servant who does exactly what his master says. He does it immediately. He does it with faith in God every step of the way. He yields himself up in prayer. He trusts the Lord. We see that and we are to be instructed. We see the faith of Rebecca and we ought to, we ought to be wowed by that. We ought to be challenged by that. We see the greed of Laban, who only responds positively when he sees the gold and the jewels. And we are to be warned by that. And, and Laban will come up again in the story. But there is more to all of this than simply learning some good character lessons. The aim of this passage is to encourage you and I to entrust our entire lives over to the care of the Lord. This passage was written, as as Genesis was written, by Moses to the people of Israel as they are preparing to enter into the promised land. They are entering into a land in which they do not know, into times that are bound to be uncertain. They do not know what they are going to face. They are terrified. Maybe they are remembering 40 years before the, the, the spies who went in and, and then gave that poor report. And they're remembering the, the cities and the enemies that they are going to have to defeat when they get there. But four times in this passage, we read and we're reminded of God's steadfast love, his mercy, his kindness. In fact, this is the very first time we read of it in the Bible. Look with me at verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness. That's our word, our word steadfast love, or the Hebrew word hesed. Show kindness, show hesed, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. This is God's special love for his people. We know from scripture that God loves all that he has made. And he loves all people. But there is a special love that he has for those who belong to him. For those with whom he has entered into covenant. This is his covenantal love. For those who have put their trust in him. And twice... In verses 27 and 49, this word hesed is combined with the word faithfulness. We see this, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy. That's our word, hesed, steadfast love. He has not forsaken his hesed and his... And here in New King James, it's translated truth or faithfulness toward my master. These are the same ideas that we will find in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses himself is standing on the mount and he asks to see God's glory and God descends and when God descends he pronounces his glory and he declares this. We read this in verse 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Do you think those two words were imprinted permanently in the mind of Moses? That when God reveals himself to him on that mount, it is the Lord, the Lord, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And here, in this critical chapter, chapter 24, it is God's steadfast love and faithfulness that rule the day. And this, is the stead, and this, this steadfast love of the Lord is the root of our confidence in the future. You know, five times the idea of success or prospering comes up in this text. And it is always as a result of God's working. Always as a result of God's leading, of God's guiding, of God's providential rule. And that is exactly what this text highlights for us. The providential rule of God to fulfill all of his good promises. The providential rule of God to fulfill all of his good promises. We see the good providence of God in the timing of this event. I mean, the servant gets to this place. He, he, you cannot time a 400-mile journey better than, than his has been timed. He gets there at the right time, and the women are beginning to come out, and he prays, and the first woman he sees is the woman he asks, and, and she is the one that... that that not only does exactly what he has prayed, but comes from the family that he is seeking. All the details come in out of his control. And more than that, we see more than just timing at here, timing at play here. We see the very choices of these individuals. God works through the faithfulness of this servant. He works through the, the faith and the willingness of Rebecca. He works even through Laban, who's motivated only by what price he can extract. God works. He providentially rules over everything. The point of this chapter is this. That God providentially rules and guides all things so that every good purpose and plan and promise will not fail. This is not only true for the people of Israel, it is true for you and I. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, this promise, this truth is for you. So that when you turn on the news, or you open up your phone and you scroll through the news feed, you must remember God is providentially guiding all things according to his good purposes and plan. That issue at work that, is, that has been bothering you, or perhaps it's not the issue at work, perhaps it's the lack of work. Perhaps it's the loss of work. Perhaps it's the insecurity of retirement. You know it's getting close, but you're just not even close to being ready. Perhaps, kids, it's, it's frustration with everything at school. With the teachers, with, with the, what's being asked of you. Perhaps it's issues at home. 
relationships unraveling. That person that you see that you thought was so reliable, not reliable. We have fears about our kids. We have fears about our grandkids. Kids, you have fears about your parents and grandparents. There is a sea of worry that we can plummet in and drown in. Life is filled with little weights, little measures that will little by little pull us further and further down. There is uncertainty in everything. There is outrage everywhere. Yet Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 that even our most basic needs, food and clothing, that our God will care for, he will provide. He says this, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And this is grounded in our absolute certainty that Christ has promised to never leave us or abandon us. That all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to him. And according to Ephesians 1.11, that he is now guiding all things according to the counsel of his will. This is what Paul will assure us in Romans 8.28. That we can know that for those who love God and work, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul will go on just a few verses later and he will say this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Brother and sister, this week we set sail once again in a sea of uncertainty. But we are guided by him who cannot fail us and will not fail us. Not because you and I deserve anything special. But because he has bought us with and by his own son. He has through Christ Jesus made to us extraordinary promises. So that even if your health fails, or the health of someone you love, the promises of God will never fail. And all this is true for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. We need the hope that only God can give. And the hope that God gives, he has secured for us through Christ. For the question that you and I face, that all of us face, is, is absolutely, is, is very simple. You and I, we have sinned against a holy God. 
do not, do not pass too quickly over that. Turn your mind back on here at the end. We, we have sinned from, from the very beginning. You and I, we have sinned. We have rebelled against him who is holy, who is infinitely worthy, who is infinitely good and righteous and just. Who is pure. In our Sunday school class a few weeks ago, we talked about how sin appears to us. And we talked about the fact that sin is made clear to us when, when we think of, we understand this, the seriousness of the fence is equal to the seriousness of the one whom we have offended. The, the greatness of the one whom we have offended. The status of the one whom we have offended. And there is no one with a greater status and glory and worth than God. He is transcendently supreme. But more than that, we, we understand sin, evil, to be specially evil when it is against that person whom we look at as being particularly innocent. Which is why crimes, not just against important people, but children, small children, are especially heinous to us. And yet there is none more pure or righteous or innocent than our God. And yet, though we have offended him and rebelled against him, in his mercy, he has sent his son into the world. And his son has died in the place of sinners so that you and I, by faith alone, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, we can be certain of all of God's good promises. Friend, I do not know where you stand with Jesus. But this text leaves us with the certainty that God is providentially ruling all things for the sake of his people. And the question that it begs is, do you belong as one of God's people? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or is it Jesus and something? It is not merely whether you know or think that Jesus exists. It is not merely whether you you are fairly certain that Jesus has died on the cross. But it's whether you are at this moment leaning on him entirely. Brother and sister, Christ and Christ alone is the anchor, the certain anchor. In an uncertain world. Let's pray. Father in heaven. How great we we need you. We are like that servant. Needing to be guided by your hand. We long to have faith like Rebecca who is willing to leave all that she knows to go and to bank her entire life on your promises. Far too often, O God, we confess we are like Laban, drawn away by the distractions and the glitter of this world. O God, would you help us? Would you forgive us? Would you come alongside us and create in us Faith that rejoices 
in the certain hope that you have secured for us through your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.